0: This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer
1: and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit.
0: We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy.
1: You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl
0: It is true, in fact, that you, you you need to be able to give everything up.
2: I don't think that you need to give everything up. To be honest, it's like I... I that way of phrasing it came um, from a discussion I had when we did our trip around Europe for the book Path Through Utopias. And it was in, a, in an absolutely magnificent squat on the edges of Barcelona. And um, when we were there, they were... Uh, still refurbishing it was a a, an old leper colony so that had been abandoned for 50 years So it was a a lot of work um and an absolutely amazing spot and they were building a bakery and a brewery and doing loads of work in the gardens and the threats of evictions were raising again and it was exactly the um, the question that i asked our friend there and he said well you know yes you actually um you, you build as though you were stay you, you're going to stay there forever and you know that it can be gone tomorrow but it's a good preparation for the uh, evanescence of life because life is like that anyway and i thought that it was actually beautiful and that when you go into that logic it actually gives much more strength that it gives fragility because you're no longer scared of losing what you build. You do it for something more than just the outcome.
0: Hello listeners and welcome to the eighth and final warming up talk in this epic search for the pluriverse. Our last talk was with activist researcher Arturo Escobar and he ended with the notion of making worlds and what that asks of us. And he proposes a shift in language to move from, for for instance, from education to learning, agriculture to growing food, from health to healing, all to actively engage in and with the world. But Escobar also said something else almost between the lines that stayed with us. He said that there are other Wests within the West. And that made Sophie think of Lazade, a rural laboratory of communal autonomy and territorial disobedience in France. And the French government keeps calling it a territory lost to the Republic. An extraordinary place with a long history, a reserved territory for an airport became a liberated space for communal living and being. A place, and I, I, I quote now one of the guests that we will shortly introduce, a place where the gaps between art, politics and daily life are dissolved. And something that strikes me, a world that exists today because it wasn't allowed to exist to start with. An interesting paradox. With us today to speak on behalf of Lazad are Zadist Jay Jordan and Isabel Isa, Fremont, welcome and allow us to introduce you shortly to our listeners.
1: And I'll start with you, Jay. Jay Jordan, you are labeled a quote, domestic extremist, unquote, by the UK police and a magician of rebellion by the French press. You co-founded the playful direct action movements Reclaim the Streets uh, in the post-Thatcher years. Uh, and a clandestine insurgent rebel clown army from 2004 on. And with your theatre background, uh, for you, and I'm quoting you here, uh, the action is the work. And actually, Jay, for Reclaim the Streets, um, the motto I read was under the tarmac, the forest. And you you set up this uh, incredible carnivalesque protest with these 25 foot high uh, hoop costumes, hiding activists with jackhammers that were planting forest seedlings <laughs> in the tarmac. And at a certain point in that, um, in that action, the Liverpool dockers caught air of uh, what you were doing and kind of joined, joined your struggle. And I was curious if you could just comment that, how like, let's say one intervention so- suddenly became a struggle um, that also brought together improbable Groups in a way because you, it's not something that I would expect that the Liverpool Dockers would would join you on such an action. So, what happened there?
3: I mean, it's it, it's really the power of the imagination and acts of audacity. I think it was the early it's ninety seven I think or ninety six. It's the early days of the internet, the first kind of uses of the internet, and the Dockers hear this story uh, of the trees being planted in the motorway. And I think it was um, literally the literally the audacity of it uh, that for me, it really showed that imag- imagination and stories can cross class boundaries, in fact, and of course, they were a completely different culture from us. I mean, you know, we were anarchists, activists, artists, ecologists, ravers, you know. And these were, you know, very traditional, you know, left dockers, um, but who had the same uh, cause. And this is, of course, just after the Zapatista uprising, you know. And it was, you know, one enemy, which is neoliberal capital, the neoliberal uh, restructuring of the docks, and many, many different ways of confronting that enemy. So the kind of pluriverse of resistance that was was there, and they recognised that. Okay. I, was yeah. also, I was also really intrigued by that small anecdote in another
0: piece that you wrote about this um, road worker who had to put back stones into the road and uh, did it so loosely that there that was the ability to take them out again to be able to use them when needed. That was sort of a very sort of secret alliance almost. That spot.
2: was actually in, in Nantes after a large demonstration in support of, um, of the Zad, yeah.
1: So for over 25 years, Jay, you have been applying creative tactics to ecological and social justice movements without separating the two. And you have artists like Chris Burden, for example, wrapped in tarpaulin and risking his life on the freeway as guiding stars for your practice, which you have come to call art as life. And we'll get back to that idea towards the very end of this talk. And two of the books that you co-authored, which are interesting for our listeners who want to know more, are we are everywhere, the irresistible rise of global anti-capitalism, and a user's guide to demanding the impossible, published in two thousand eleven.
0: Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> so now it's your turn, Isa. Yeah, and your bio starts with that you you are a popular educator, but I was really wondering what is a popular educator? What does it actually mean?
2: It means that you actually very much believe that. People already have the the power to get the knowledge themselves, and that it's a way of bringing forth the uh, the the power of people to, to get more autonomy from using very participatory uh, techniques and and methodologies. It very much goes against the idea that there would be people who know and people who don't know, and that the people who know should basically fill up that we all know. Um, things and that knowledge is very situated and that popular education is very much about exchanging and skill sharing and uh, using education as a as an emancipatory um,
0: process. It's almost like a Socratic approach towards the okay. sharing of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So you are a popular educator, <laughs> an action researcher and self-proclaimed deserter of the neoliberal academy where you for a decade were a senior lecturer in media and cultural studies at Birkbeck College in London. And you co-authored with Jay the film and the book Path Through Utopias. And together you coordinate, um, and that's important, the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination, which you fondly also call La Beaufort, which I think is a really cute name. <laughs> do, how do the French pronounce that? La yeah, yeah. I think La very nice and you bring artists and activists together to design tools and acts of disobedience for instance in launching a rebel raft regatta to shut down a coal-fired power station or turning bikes into machines of disobedience during a climate summit and for instance to for refusing to be censored by bp british petrol that sponsors the tate gallery and that made us very aware of the money streams that are supporting our own project. So we did a quick scan and we're happy to say, or relatively happy to say, that uh, our search of the pluriverse is fully sponsored by a public budget, which doesn't, that's no guarantee, of (laughs) course. But it makes us think, and you also write about it a lot, and I was, um, and that's my question, because you sort of, well, you replaced the popular term Anthropocene For the more precise, I think, uh, term capitolocene, and maybe you can say something about how these two words relate to each other and why the capitolocene is much more precise and more fair in many ways than the more universal Anthropocene. Because it's quite a popular word also in our circles, you know, everything is about the Anthropocene.
2: It's a way way of underlying what we feel is the true responsibility of this new era, since then Anthropocene is supposed to designate a new geological era um, by actually underlying the responsibility, which is the industrial capital flows, rather than Anthropocene, which denotes that the idea that it would be all humans that would be responsible for that state of affair, which is absolutely not the case. A very small portion of large corporations that are responsible for the majority of the emissions. And it seems to us really important to not, when we want to underline the responsibility that some of us share, for uh, a problem to not give the impression that everybody shares that responsibility because at the moment what we see is that those who are at the receiving end of the worst impact of climate chaos are historically far less responsible for for the uh, the onset of it so capital is very much about pointing the finger to the system that has brought this this um, this state of affairs.
1: Besides disobeying the system, the dominant system, I should say, and being partners in crime uh, in doing this, you're also partners in life. And you live and work on the ZAD, where you both relocated in 2015, which was a direct consequence of you joining the struggle of the ZAD and that struggle becoming also your own struggle, I I would say. And uh, I quote you here, you said that the more you inhabit a place, the more it inhabits you, right? For our listeners, could you um, explain to them what this word ZAD means, because they've heard it now six times, Z-A-D, but uh, for most listeners in the um, anglophone world, it's perhaps not a very known word. What is it and what does it represent?
2: It's actually a hack, ZAD. Um, ZAD, originally, is a a very bureaucratic um, acronym, which means, in French, zone à aménagement différé, which designates a large area to be where the development, the urban development, is going to be deferred. That means that it's a zone, um, a territory that where nothing happens because something else is going to happen later. Uh, in that case, a very um, a 1600 hectares uh, territory of Bocage that we'll explain um, in a minute that was supposed to become uh, an airport. And that through the development of a, of a struggle that will uh, take you on a, on a walk through has become uh, the zone a défendre, the zone to defend. So from a bureaucratic acronym to a beautiful life experiment. And what is interesting is that um, ZAD is now in the French dictionary. So, so is the significance of that, of that struggle. And actually um, quite a lot of um, other struggles in France that use the same type of strategy of occupying the land that you want to defend, um, have been using that.
3: As we speak, a ZAD just got yes. evicted against the, the urbanization and the construction of a high-speed train uh, station in Gonesse near Paris. So, And there was a, a new ZAD just down here, down the road from us as well, against the construction of a eco industry park on some marshlands. So they there. And there's a ZAD in Switzerland at the moment. So there are ZADs now uh, in many places. Nice. That's also the power of language and the power
0: of wordplay. I think that makes this. Yeah. And yeah, and you call yourself Zadist. Well, we don't
3: actually, the media more calls us <laughs> also, those, we don't really ever call ourselves the Zadist
1: and why why wouldn't you call yourself it's
3: very that? uh there's a lot of baggage with that i mean people when they hear the words that is they will immediately have one image in their head which is normally of a kind of you know dangerous ecoterrorist punk with a molotov cocktail in one hand and a dog on the other <laughs>
2: <laughs> i think that is also a resistance against this identity building, rather than um, identifying a political strategy, is that trying to turn it into into an identity, which is which is very partial and kind of erodes the porosity and the great diversity of what this movement was. Because the Zad is a is a fascinating territory, but it came into being because there's been such an amazing movement, and the term Zadist. I think aims to actually close that down, and that's why that's why people are not so um, happy to uh, to be designated like this. And just a, a, tiny, a tiny thing, because I think it's important to understand yeah. We're not so much talking on behalf of Lazad as we're talking from Lazad. From
0: okay, Lazad. point taken. From Lazad. Um, Well, we were um, preparing this talk and we were fantasizing about actually being there, so we imagined ourselves um, with our audio tent, we made an audio tent that we are planning to take on our travels when later we will start to travel around in search of the pluriverse, but of course that's not going to happen. So this Zoom talk uh, has to be the best next thing, but then it could be good to take a moment to sort of position yourself and also for our listeners. So where exactly are you now? And what's the weather like? Maybe there is some news, some daily
3: news that you want to share with us. Well, it was very misty this morning and um, we're on a wetland. And what is extraordinary about a wetland is that it keeps the water. It's actually, this is a big, it's like a big back of clay. You've got to imagine a big back of clay with, a, with several watersheds that come off it. And it, it's like a sponge and it, it keeps all the water and then distributes it back out to the watersheds around here. So what a great place to build an airport and suck it dry. Uh, and this morning we woke up to the mist and the mist always leaves dampness in the air. So the washing on the line is still not dry.
2: And we have a beautiful uh, tree that uh, that has blossomed. So trees plus blossoming tree in the sun that is just the best of spring.
0: Yeah, let's get our coats on. Let's go for the tour. I think we should start with the tour. I'm, it is I'm a good idea.
2: boots. is that a good idea? I think it's always a good idea. You <laughs> hopefully might not need it so much today because um it's been it's been dry for the last uh, for the last few weeks but um but mud has is, uh, is always waiting for you around the corner, so boots is a good ally.
3: coats on ready to go Great. well, welcome. Through, uh La Rolandiere. So right now, you're right in the middle of the ZAD. If you imagine on the map, there's two big main roads going going up and, and you're right in the middle. We're at an old farmhouse, big, big, long granite farmhouse. We're going to go right up to the top of the lighthouse to get a view of the bockage. You can see the bockage. What is called the bockage? Now, bockage is basically a word for this kind of checkerboard landscape uh lots of there's 222 kilometers of hedgerows across this landscape and this is a landscape that was destroyed normally in the 50s uh and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s by industrial agriculture it was called le roman roman happened all, all over france and when you go through france you see these big big open fields uh and in fact was never like that before you had these little fields surrounded by hedgerows ecologically really important it keeps the water in the in the soil uh, it's full of different species it stops erosion it's a you know it's a fantastic system and of course they destroyed all these hedges uh, to uh, allow uh, big machinery into the fields and where it was where productivism came into agriculture big big time and here because they wanted to build an airport on this bockage, they thought well we don't need to destroy it because we're going to build a airport there anyway. And as you will see through the tour that actually we now have the bockage thanks to uh, the the success. And those kilometers of hedges, what what kind of hedges are they? So I'm uh, looking down at the hedges there and uh, you've got hawthorn in them, you've got oak trees in them, you've got um, elderberries in them, uh, you have holly, It's really, yeah, it's really a mixture, uh, and
1: how do you know, how do you know this, like, which kinds of hedges you've got and stuff? How did you gain all this knowledge of your own environment? There are are
2: plenty of people on the ZAD who know, who know the, the place so well, and we're very good friends with, uh, with a few, um, naturalists who've been really good at sharing this kind of knowledge. And there's also a group on the ZAD that actually takes care of the of the hedges because they need care, like everything. And so that knowledge participating in in the care of the hedges, you just you just get to, get to learn.
3: But if you'd come here uh, several hundred years ago, like uh, uh, say you came here 10,000 years ago, it, it would have been a forest. Uh, what happened is like all of, most of Europe, it was deforested by the Neolithic revolution and uh, arrival of agriculture and axes. And then it became, we're here, it's called Notre Dame des Landes, this area. Um, and and Notre Dame des Landes means Our Lady of the Moorlands. And it became a moorland, a classic moorland uh, with very, very few trees. And the irony is that that moorland was then uh, enclosed and privatized by the money from slavery from the local town, because this airport was for the town of Nantes, which is 20 kilometers away. Great irony is that the money from the slave trade was used to privatize bits of this moorland, which was actually run as a commons for about a thousand years and turn it into the bockage. So these little hedgerows, these square hedgerows, were actually forms of enclosure by capital of the commons. Great irony is that we saved the hedgerows and we want to keep the hedgerows, but we also want to keep this place as a commons away from privatization. And of course, the the great act of privatization and, and urbanization and development of this zone was this idea of an airport. It would have completely sucked everything dry here and covered it in concrete. Uh, on these 1,650 hectares, but of course it was an airport that was seen as a green airport. It had green roofs, uh, they wouldn't have roundabouts for the roads, uh, there would be squareabouts. So that there would be square so that they would, you would remember the bockage by the squareness. And you'd even have hedges in the car parks with special trees that couldn't have birds on them to remember the hedges that were destroyed. It's 74, 1974 is when the ZAD comes into being, this idea of this land for the airport, and already there was no resistance comes from nowhere resistance is always already on a fertile good strong movements come from fertile soils and there had already been strong resistance in the area against nuclear power stations in fact Brittany has no nuclear power stations it's the only part of france that doesn't have nuclear power stations because they were resisted by people during the 70s and 80s and it's also an area where there was a long tradition of radical peasantry Peasant farmers basically working uh, with uh, workers during, notably in 68 uh, and creating a very very powerful movement that basically said we are like the proletariat and uh, that we are a revolutionary force. And this movement could never have existed without those, those bases and it started as a resistance by farmers for nourishing land.
1: And how did the struggle evolve from this initial protest, uh, Isa, from like these farmers coming together to protest against an airport plan and then citizens joining them a couple of years later and then later on in the 2000s when
2: again other forms of struggles appeared? Of course, I mean, one of the things that is important to have in mind is that the the airport uh, project went into dormancy for quite a long time, mostly because of the oil shock and that meant that it was it didn't feel like such a good idea to actually uh, build an airport anymore. But the zad, this um, this label, actually meant that nothing else was uh, was going on and uh, it came out of the boxes in 2000 with a, the with a socialist government. And therefore the resistance reactivated really quickly and expanded at that time from more farmers-based uh, struggle to more citizens-based struggle with a, a big organization that did uh, a lot of awareness raising and legal challenges. Um, and, uh, and I'll take you downstairs. We'll come back down from the, uh, from the lighthouse. Oh
0: good, because and- I'm, getting, I'm getting quite cold, Isa.
2: You're getting, you're getting cold, be careful, the, the stairs can be a bit slippery, we are going to get to the library and you can see that um, there is a, a gangway that links the, the lighthouse to the, to the library and there was a little bit of a um, hat tip to um, Alexandria, the mythical city of Alexandria and also because it was it was a tool of defense. So um, you the, both built that lighthouse, right? This is something you. I mean, both with the whole zad, with a very large with a very large group of uh, of people, including welders from the local shipyard that were building massive um, cruise ships during the week and come at the weekend to to help build this uh, this lighthouse. And
3: it's exactly where they wanted to put the control tower. We are here to welcome people and to have this symbol of hope, but also this symbol that shows you the dangers of capitalism and brings you home, you know, helps you to, to find home. But
0: since we're now on the gangway, yeah, you call it the gangway into the library, maybe you can say something about the miracle of the gangway, because we saw the movie about the lighthouse, which is a beautiful movie, and everything came together in such an interesting way.
2: It is, it is a miracle. There was always the idea of building a gangway between the library and the lighthouse, and um, at some point the crew only had um, wood to do it and uh and so he was starting making plans for a gangway made out of wood and a friend came and said that he was just dropping by from uh, the local recycling center that had a bit of a present and to open his van and there there was a metallic gangway that was exactly the right size that was uh, that was the miracle which is a which is a sanskrit word that's actually the things that make you smile
3: it's not mystical
2: it's like it's not mystical it's
3: um it makes you smile
2: and certainly for me this this library is something that makes me smile very often it's a it's a beautiful library uh, that was built with a bit of a maritime style so it's all made of wood and uh, if we come down and the stairs from the library to the beautiful space downstairs. It is what um, we turned the stables of this house into a welcome center. It was turned into this um, welcome center by loads and loads of people that came to help and um, made uh, made this uh, floorboards out of pallets and uh, earth-isolating uh, walls. And we wanted to have a space for people to be able to stop and uh, have information about what is the zad where what is the struggle about where to go get um, get maps etc it's a really significant place because as um jay said it's at la Rolandière. la Rolandière. Um, has been um, inhabited by people who were against the airport for about 25 years um, and was also inhabited by um, someone who signed a very important letter in 2008 called The Letters from the Inhabitant who Resist, who actually saw that because from the year 2000 the project was back, Um, on the cards the expropriation procedures meant that it was being emptied and they wrote a letter saying a territory can only be defended if it's inhabited and they called for people to come and occupy the land and the buildings that were emptied and that was really important because it's important to remember that this occupation was at the invitation of local people and that letter was read out and amplified during a climate camp in two thousand and nine, inspired by climate camps that we were involved in organizing in the uk the years before mm. um, that are actually on the field over there that we're going to cross that we're going to go along to go to the to a, a very strategic crossroad and as we
1: as we cross this road and go to the site where this climate camp took place also at, at Lazad, What is
2: exactly a climate camp for our listeners? um, A climate camp is basically a self-managed camp with loads of workshops and um, demonstrations of different ways of having sustainable living. So it's usually uh, powered with uh, renewable energy, where we compost the waste, etc. But importantly, it's cited on what we identified as um, climate crimes. So you actually go where climate crimes um is about to be committed to actually um occupy it and and underline the fact that this is this should not um happen and there's this basically this intertwining of the resistance and the construction showing the yes and the no in the same gesture and what is important with the climate camp of the of the ZAD is that because the letter was amplified at that moment people decided not to go so when the climate camp uh, folded its marquees, people decided to stay and the zad as in the De zona defend came into being with the slogan that um, was being against the airport and its world i.e everything that it actually um, encapsulates
0: and you say is that uh you sort of embrace the yes and the no at the same time. And I see that a lot in your writing and in, the, in, in also your strategy, that somehow um, you use the binary of the yes and the no, a bit like Brian Eno's axis thinking. I don't know if you're familiar with his thinking, but he uses the axis with two poles, not as a binary system, but he uses the binary to show the immense possibilities within the binary. The, thousand tones of gray that are in between the black and the white can you say a little bit more about that yes and no and uh that's sort of the paradox you always seem to work with
3: yeah so i mean here it's this uh so there's that we created this community here against the airport so it's not doing a protest it's not just doing protests against an airport it's actually putting your bodies in the way and living in the way and living the forms of life that you want to show as ways of forms of life which are in opposition to the thing that is being built so you know showing that you can actually have a, a territory uh, working with horizontality you don't need leaders you don't need bosses showing that you can have a territory which lives in accordance with an understanding of other more than human uh, species and, and beings and so on and so the idea of the yes and the no is that you you say no to something and you show its alternative at the same time. You have proposition and protest, uh, and for us, we call it the kind of DNA of a revolutionary of a revolution. In a sense, these these two things: the yes and the no. But the key is, if you're just in the in the no, you often get burnt out. It's it's you know you're just in resistance, 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 and you're not living the actual life that you are demanding in your in your protest. But if you're just doing the yes. Uh, and if you're just, you know, like all the startups and the, you know, eco startups and the, you know, so on, and you're just proposing alternatives or so-called alternatives, then you can easily be recuperated by capital. And Silicon Valley is an absolutely brilliant example of this, where basically you just had, you know, you had the 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 yes of the utopian 60s uh, hippie communities uh, developing ideas of, com- of of community and then, uh, the, the, the internet and the, the seeds of Silicon Valley, and then being completely co-opted because they were no longer part of a movement that said no. They'd forgotten who their enemy was. And so for us, it's super important that these two things always come, come together. It reminds me a little bit of the Yes Man. Do you know the Yes Man?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those well. two San Francisco-based uh, activists, yes. Who also embraced so we- the no and the yes, I would say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
3: So we're at the crossroads here and um, which crossroad are yeah, we on? I've
1: got my I've got your fold out map with me but I'm a bit lost.
3: Here we're, oh, we're here.
1: Okay, on that big road right there. Okay.
3: Yeah, and this is the crossroads here, yeah. uh-huh.
2: and that's a very—it's a very strategic uh, crossroads to um, talk about a, a turning point in the history of the ZAD, which was the attempted evictions of 2012, where basically there was a massive uh, military operation that came to try and evict those illegal uh, people, i.e., all those who had come at the invitation of uh, of local uh, residents, um, and. It was a large military operation with about 1,200 um, police that was resisted with so much strength and determination and diversity, and that diversity of forums uh, really echoed the diversity of the movement, and that basically the people, um, the, the local farmers, the citizens, but also, all those who had come to uh, to live here, and those who supported from outside, um, de- decided to uh, to resist these uh, these evictions. And basically, when the cops came, they didn't know whether they would find villages singing peace songs or people. Um, naked showing their vulnerability, or actually a burning barricades and some stones in them and Molotov cocktails. And that incredible diversity um, and that determination really had a culminating uh, point, which was what we call the reoccupation
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, demonstration, where people vowed um, to come and rebuild what had been destroyed a month after it had started. And 40,000 people came and rebuilt a hamlet Um, In one weekend, which uh, got attacked by the police three days later, and the the peak of resistance really, really uh, culminated then because when people have spent a weekend, 40,000 people spent a weekend building something. (laughs) They're gonna kind of want to defend it. And this is when they realized that actually the resistance was too strength, the movement was too strong, and they withdrew. The authorities withdrew uh, from the zone and left it without intervening again for six years. And basically for six years the ZAD became this inc- incredible laboratory of um, commoning and um, and self-organization um, because it means that when you don't have to be suffocated by rules and regulations around um, design and buildings, for instance, is that you can build the most incredible cabins um, and I think that the creativity of what is left open when the possibilities are not suffocated by, uh, by regulations really, really came into being um, and this is also when a lot of activity started uh coming into being and that the um, pluriverse and the exchanges really uh started there were up to 400 people in 70 collectives living here with farmers becoming squatters and young people who came more from squatting uh, culture becoming uh becoming farmers and people coming and discovering. Um, Uh, vocations that are and basically taking roots in this uh, territory and in that sense that where you where you become so uh, rooted and so inhabited by a territory that you're prepared to truly defend it because it is not just a living place it has become your your habitat
0: so that call for occupation that call for building to construct was quite
3: a, a good vision, a visionary that really worked. Well, I mean, it shows one of the s- tactics that was super useful yeah. good here, like one step ahead, always stay one step ahead of the state of the enemy, always stay one step ahead. And, and so that call out had gone out a year beforehand. People had had really the time to, to think, OK, when these evictions happen, we know that a month later we're going to come back and rebuild.
2: And I think that is also the incredible strength of this movement was that being a step ahead and truly believing that they would win and that i think that this is and having a vision of um and the the yes and the no also takes the form of having a true vision of what the life of the the movement would be like once the the airport cancellation had been um announced and that was actually um worked upon by the entire movement even before the the airport cancellation was announced
3: So maybe it's worth saying, how did it get cancelled, this airport? So what I mean, what happens is that the police leave us for six years. They try and define this zone as a dangerous place that the head of the department says that it's more dangerous to come to the ZAD than to go to Mosul in Iraq uh there's a load of criminalization but actually we're constantly opening it up having new relationships with with farmers around in the area uh with students with people from nant uh, and 150 different collectives are built up around the country to support the resistance so you've got a kind of micro uh, you've got a world of the zad but as you you have this this huge network of resistance across the across the country and then, in um, uh, they say they're going to come back. They say they're going to, by Jan in January two thousand and sixteen, they say all the legal, the, all the legal situations are ripe for the airport. It's a green light now for the airport to be built. Uh, all the squats can be evicted. E- even the farmers who refuse to sell their farms uh, are now able to be re- evicted. And um, we say, okay, the first warning. Twenty thousand people and five hundred tractors and a thousand bikes take over this bridge on the river nantes nearby and keep it for a, for a whole day before the water can, cannons come and move us off. And they say we're still going to build it. So then we say, okay, well, we'll do a second warning, and sixty thousand people have a massive party on the. Uh, motorway that just crosses near the Zad here on the left here, was just here. Uh, So imagine 60,000 people dancing, having a great party on there. And then the government are, hmm, this is a bit complicated. We haven't even come in for the first dig of the first bulldozer to make the first bit of road that will lead to the airport, that will build the airport, and they they can get 60,000 people. Uh, And so they uh, put in a referendum. They do a fake kind of referendum. We lose the referendum, so 55% of the local people want the airport, not the very, very local people, but of the department. They knew that they would win if they did it with that department. If they did it with other departments, they would have lost. If they did it nationally, they would have lost. But we still, and they tried to do it to divide the movement between radicals and c- citizens, because there were so many different diversity. I mean, there really was a pure versus movement. You would have, you know, meetings where you'd have an ex-mayor sitting next to Uh, an anarchist who doesn't believe in the state, sitting next to a primitivist who doesn't even want to have uh, electricity in their hut and refuses any tractors on their land, sitting next to a a, a kind of libertarian anarcho-communist who wants to have big tractors to make food for all the community, uh, sitting next to a farmer uh, who's been there for seven generations, sitting next to a vegan, you know, who's against any uh, milk. So you had this incredible diversity. And they tried to split this with the referendum so that the legal people go, oh, well, democracy, we're not going to. But actually, the citizens folk said no, 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 even if it, you know, this says yes, we're still against this airport. And then the final act, uh, in a sense, was we did a huge training where we trained 1000 people in learning to create affinity groups on the zone and defend the zone. And at the end of the trainings, we had this big there was a big event in October, where we invited people to come with sticks, to put a stick, a walking stick into the ground and make a pledge to promise to come back and get their stick if the government came to build the airport. And 40,000 people turned up and 20,000 sticks were Put onto this piece of land, uh, and as we did Where that, we that? raised. That, uh, uh, okay. This is just over here at the end of the of the the Suez. So we're 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 now here near Bellevue, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, basically, as those sticks were going into the ground, we were raising. An old barn, an incredible piece of architecture that was built by traditional carpenters uh, out of oak that looks like a cathedral with carvings, wooden carvings, and everything. And this barn was raised uh, as the sticks were going in, uh, and we called it the Barn of the Future. I
1: saw a picture it, of it, of oh, yeah, this yeah, incredible group of people carrying it, like walking the barn. I
3: uh, know, that's another thing. That's another, that's barn. another thing. Okay. That's another thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this barn is way bigger than that. Oh. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah. and actually they um i mean basically the the sticks what we call the the walk of the sticks uh really was a a ritual disguised as a demonstration and uh, and it worked
1: i mean the the numbers are are super impressive but i think that the success if we can if we can speak of it in terms of success of the tactics that you deploy is also because of the the multiplicity of the tactics, which you also as as, La Beaufie, as laboratory of insurrectionary imagination, you, you train people in and you, I know you also organize on, on key pagan dates every year. You celebrate the anniversary of the abandonment, right? Of the, the airport mm-hmm. every year. So can you take us there maybe because we missed it. It was 17th of January. About a month ago, two months.
2: Maybe we should explain the um, the the sequence where the cancellation was announced because I think it's important. Okay. So that means that basically, so 2016, despite weekly announcement by the prime minister um, that they would come and evict and start the building works, is that they don't, and then the government changes in France, and on the 18th of January 2018, prime minister. 17 the 17th of January 2018, um, the Prime Minister of France with uh, the Minister for Ecology on one side and the Minister of Interior on the other side announces that the airport will not be built, that actually, he says the conditions are not there to be able to build um, an airport and that means that basically it's one of the most uh, significant victories um, in Europe for this kind of uh, of battles um, and obviously also in the same speech pretty much in the same breath says but all those illegal people will have to go or they will be evicted because of course they have to make people forget this great humiliation that this um, giving in um, means and we say okay you want people to be legally able to stay they are possibilities and we propose we have a delegation that comes and meets and says you know you just have to do a collective lease for everyone i mean the people who have been taking care of this blockage uh, for the last 40 years are those who are legitimate to actually stay and keep taking care um, of it because there is no way that after having avoided um, having an airport here, we're going to leave it to industrial agriculture, for instance, yeah. so, which is very likely what would happen. So the fight is not over when the airport cancellation is announced. And basically, um, we say, you know, we're we're going to fight, we're going to fight for everybody to be able to stay. And, uh, and they have to make us pay for this, because there is one thing that the government has to defend is the idea that they are necessary. And one of the things that the ZAD has been demonstrating for the last uh, six years at that point is that actually they're not. And that is something that they cannot forgive. Yeah, but is, so,
0: that, is that because you say that the, the French government is humiliated by this, but isn't it also, maybe I'm a bit naive, isn't that turning around now? Or wouldn't it be good? Maybe it's more like 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 a dream. Wouldn't it be good if the government would see it as an addition as an enrichment of french culture that
2: that's what they're that's what they're trying to create trying to rewrite the history and one of the things that we need to defend because basically the the punishment for that humiliation um and for the the very clear determination of the movement to keep um this territory as commons came in um in april uh 2018 with the vastest um, military operation since 1968, um, they destroyed a third of the cabins on the Zad um, in three days. They basically um, threw 11,000 grenades, tear gas grenades, and explosive and concussion grenades on people who were defending life on this um, on, on this blockage. So it was it was a very strong point that they that they made, and that meant that we. A part, a part of the movement um, decided to accept whilst hacking the proposal of legalization that they put to us, where they said, okay, there is this form that you can that you can fill in, it will be individually named uh, for each. For each name, there'll be a piece of land and a project and those who sign that piece of paper will be able to stay and the others will be evicted and will carry on the military operation. And what the movement did was to actually hack that form and show that, well, we could put names, but that all that we do on this territory is totally intertwined and that they cannot individualize and atomize us. Uh, not everybody agreed with that strategy because it was a very big gamble. But um, so quite a lot of people uh, left. But those of us who took that gamble are still here. A lot of like we are still squatters, except the historic farmers that just refused the expropriation.
3: The buildings are squats. The land isn't.
2: We yeah. The the land have been. Um, have had leases signed for them, but all the all the buildings are still squatted still And basically, the the struggle has now shifted onto um, a more administrative a legal one, uh, yeah. level, a legal level. Mm. But the strategy remains the same. And one of the things that is important to um, to show is um, is that actually there was a, a victory. So we indeed, for instance, organize rituals on the seventeenth of January um, every year where for the last two years, for instance, um, a new building has been erected, even though we're not necessarily allowed to do it, because we want to show that we are going to keep inhabiting this uh, territory in, in as commons.
3: And the great irony is that, you know, the, the, the richness of the commons here was that you had cheese making and you had breweries, you had the library, sheep farming, uh, you have concert spaces, all sorts of activities. But the only thing that is legal now on the ZAD is farming. So again, it's this division of the world, you know, you, you, you know, the the law says this is agricultural land for, of course, for, you know, for all the 40 years before it said, this is just airport land <laughs> and now it's gone back to agricultural land and all the planning thinking is again, the opposite of a kind of inhabited, diverse, pluriversal thinking, because it's like, you know, you should have your farm here and then you should live in the village and take your car and come and do your farming. You know, there are people, there are farmers here who've uh, got their huts and they've built their off-grid huts and which are illegal. You know, they're not allowed to have their hut And they're using ecology to get rid of their huts. They're saying, well, that, the hut is now on a wetlands. So the same people who wanted to build the airport are now saying, you need to move your, house, your little hut mm because it doesn't fit the planning laws. The planning laws say that you can have your farm, but you should go and live in the city and come by car. And and so the resistance continues now against planning laws actually, and against the whole uh, way that the planning laws are about specializing, uh, you know, one place where you farm, one place where you shop, one place where you go entertained. So we're we're now trying to, we're even taking the planning laws to court in fact. Hmm.
1: It reminds me of a very nice quote by you that I read how to tackle the movements of of dominant powers, right? That when the the visible enemy retreats, how do you then address that yourself when power reconfigures all the time? It reminds me also of uh, our talk with Camila Marambio back in December where she was saying, you have to be as monstrous as the monsters that you fight, and even more monstrous, so even more Let's say pluri-shaped, pluri but if you if you have to wave us out of Lazad, uh, Jay and Iza, which way out do you propose? Is there like a particular exit out of Lazad, or you want to bring us back to the lighthouse where
2: we started? I would definitely cross the forest of Rohan, which is a, which is a very small, but very precious forest where I personally had the luck to truly understand what it means to um care for the territory that takes care of you with a group of people have that have opened my eyes to what it means to really look at where you live differently and really have a sense of what it means to uh, to care for your habitat because it it takes care of you so i really would like to um go through this um this beautiful forest of uh of hours that is, um, that is just on the other side of the field that we crossed initially to come back to La Rolandia.
3: And a forest which for us, you know, is not about keeping the forest uh, wild. It's about actually using the forest. So the the forest, the, the, the beautiful barn that we saw near the sticks, the barn of the future is in fact a sawmill and a place, uh, a kind of mothership for all the other wooden constructions on the zone and for constructions for different movements uh, because we actually you know cut the trees in the forest uh, to produce our own wood but in a way that is you know using horses and it's very much about thinking of the ho- the, the regeneration of the forest uh, through the cutting of the trees by bringing more light in and therefore enabling other trees to come so it's very much a dialogue with the forest it's not uh, it's not using it as a resource And neither is it using it, uh, saying this is a a wild era that we will not touch. Because really what the ZAD is about is how do you live with this territory?
1: We're looking up at these trees around us and it's such a rich ecosystem. I mean, one of the things you both are working on is this idea of also rooting yourselves as artists. The necessity to territorialize the art world against this hypermobility that is happening everywhere. Do you want to do you want to comment that and to comment how you approach this in your forthcoming book for our listeners?
3: Yeah, I mean, we come from, you know, I was a senior lecturer in fine art and we come from a, you know, we still work in the cultural sector. And yet our critique is that, you know, it has no political agency because it's uprooted. If you can say on your CV that you've had shows in Istanbul, in New York, in Cairo, you you know, you have a good CV. You're you're doing great. Uh, If you say, well, you lived in this same village all your life and that your work is all about developing a deep relationship with the place and its communities of human and more than human uh, beings, then your art career is completely fucked. Um, And for us, this hypermobility is in a way what is keeping art as this, useless thing which has no actual function to politically transform anything because there's no hold on anything and
1: useless useless is quite an i think it's even damaging in a way right you've even described it as a kind of digesting machine
2: i mean i think that we have a very strong critique for having it having seen it so much of um of practices that are actually extractivist the same way as you have extractivist practices uh with fossil fuels which means that you basically take out material raw material that you consider material and resource and you transform it and take it somewhere else without ever uh, caring or thinking about what is left behind and usually what is left behind is um, toxic poisoned desserts and i think that that's something that we see in the art world that even people who actually go into popular neighborhoods community centers those ZAD, don't necessarily think much about what that's gonna bring to the people, to the territory that it's extracting material from and that in the end what really matters is one's career. It's like is that going to make good art good art only defined according to the criteria of the art world and never from the criteria of the people who are um, impacted in in the first place and we think that that is the same logic and this logic of extractivism is the opposite of what we want from from pluriverses which have to be reciprocal relationships instead building beneficial relationships is what um, is needed and i think that For quite a lot of artists, there is this idea that doing that work and bringing it uh, out—we hear that a lot. It's like, oh yeah, but you know, I give visibility, I I trigger a polemic, I I raise awareness. But that's still a completely unilateral. It's a completely unilateral move. And what I feel we we need is uh, is to think in terms of reciprocity and beneficial relationships what is an art of beneficial relationships and
3: for us the you know the beauty in this the question of beauty for us is actually an act of beauty for us is also an ethical act we try and not divide ethics and, et- and aesthetics so we haven't taken a plane for 15 years for example uh, because our life and our art are, have to be completely entangled and for us well, our, our, the way we definitely define beauty is that actually it's enabling other forms of life to live it's creating space which enables other life to flourish you know you could see the zad as a work of art, because it's enabled life to continue to flourish, continue to become more diverse, rather than covering it in concrete in a monoculture of an airport. It used to be the role of of ritual, in a sense, you know, and this is why, in a sense, we we now also involved in, in not only doing disobedient forms of art and activism, but also rituals on the ZAD to in a way bring art back to to its origins, uh, which was something that linked communities and nourished communities and enabled communities to feel stronger together and and to give them hope. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. I think I'm all for a part two, and maybe our listeners are also in for a part two, because there's so much more to talk about. Also, the way, this the way of.
1: Resolving conflicts. Yeah, resolving within. conflicts
0: or, or organizing daily life within ZAD. That's, that's something we could talk a second hour about.
1: So a concrete, concrete call to our listeners. If you want a part two to this talk, please send in a request to pluriverse at hetniweinstitute.nl and one request is enough.
0: Um, so it's time to say goodbye. Thank you so much, Jay and Isa, for this inspirational tour through the miracle that uh, ZAD is. And um, this also was the eighth and last warming up talk in the series In Search of the Pluriverse. Stay tuned because there's much more to come.
1: For more background on this project, you can uh, dig into our Travelling Academy web magazine where we add every time uh, notions that come out of our talks and references also. The web magazine can be found at .at pluriverse.hadnewinstitute.nl You can also read the book Designs for the Pluriverse by Arturo Escobar that we did not refer to directly today, but uh, we know that Arthur Escobar actually stayed at Lazad with you, right, Jay and Isa? So there was an underground link here. Wow. <laughs> and uh, you can follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Plurivers. And your hosts today were Sophie Creer
0: and Eric Wong. And the tune was by Jakomiri. And our audio engineer was Tzee Kao. Thank you very much, Tzee. And In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Travelling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut Rotterdam that explores how formal and informal knowledges can reinforce each other in tackling ecological, social, political and spatial issues. On
1: how we can live together.
0: She always has to have the last word. Do you have have that too?